Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Plenty of action still to go at Rod Lave Arena, the Australian Open. Some big names Cameron Norrie, third round action. The likes of Shapovalov, the Canadian, who's yet to really maybe just find that consistency and fulfil his potential or the potential people have been talking about for a long time. Sitsi Pass, the great Greek player, also in action. But all the talk is the wonderful performance of Andy Murray at the age of 35, getting up and beating the Australian Kokonakis after losing the first two sets, 6-4-7-6, bouncing back 7-6-6-3-7-5 in almost a six-hour encounter. We decided that we'd go local on this. Our next guest has got his own tennis academy. He's played Davis Cup for New Zealand, but he's just a good man who has a good sense and a good understanding of the game. His name is Sebastian Levine. He joins us. Sebastian, good evening, good afternoon, good morning. Welcome. How are you? <laughs> I'm really well, thanks. Really been enjoying the start of this on the Open scene. Amazing. Now, you're on a plane tonight to go over there, aren't you? Yeah, yeah. I'm really looking forward to that, actually. Um, some of the matches so far um, have been absolutely incredible, um, but I'm really excited to watch it live um, over the weekend. Are you going there as a fan, or are you going there in a work capacity? Uh, well, look, I mean, to be honest, uh, every time I go to tennis, it's normally as a fan, um, first and foremost, but I will be doing some work as well. So um, hopefully I'll get some time to... Huh to go and stroll the backcourts. Um, we've also got one of the Kiwi girls, Vivian Yang, who's qualified for the juniors. So I'm uh, really looking forward to cover and supporting her as well. Yeah, Sebastian, always envious of you guys because, I mean, you you know, you might not have, say, cracked the top 100, but you're still a hell of a tennis player when you look at how big the global is. And here you are sitting watching these guys play. Know that, knowing that if you were asked, you could actually hit up with them. I, I, I love that idea of being able to actually just rally with these guys. Yeah, uh, yeah definitely, definitely. I um, I'm probably quite past my prime now, but um, definitely during the classic, uh, there were some moments where a few, a few of the mates I used to play with uh, just asked me if I could give them a quick warm up, and that was that was really good fun uh, just to get out there. I was a little bit nervous to be honest before before the matches, not to screw it up, but um, it was it was really great to get out there with them. Mm-hmm. Sebastian, uh, let's talk about that Andy Murray game. I mean, firstly, I mean, finishing at four o'clock in the morning is that is that fair on anyone? I know there's a global television audience, and there are parts of the world where that is prime time television, but Boy, it's going to be pretty tough to back that up in a couple of days for Andy Murray. Yeah, definitely. I mean, especially after the first round that he had, which was also absolutely ridiculous against Berrettini. Um, don't think it finished quite that late, but the level and the intensity, and uh, it was almost five hours as well. So I'm not actually, I'm actually amazed with how how he's been able to do that two two matches in a row. Um, look, I mean, it doesn't happen that often that those matches finish that late at Grand Slams with the five set format. Um, you know, if you get a couple five-set matches on on one of the main courts, it can often happen. Um, but it gets quite late. But at 4 a.m., is, yeah, it's probably, probably not ideal for the players, for the ball kids, for the linesmen, for the for the fans that stayed and have to go to work the next day. Mm. I, I, I want to ask you this because if that 
if he was playing on the women's side, he would have been out after having dropped the two sets. This is nothing to do with the pay pay argument we often hear. But at, at a Grand Slam level, do you think the women's game would be a better product if they did play five sets? Give, say, maybe some of those players who have got a really good work ethic, who focus on fitness, more of an opportunity and... Um, because really, do we see? Really, do we see? You know, or talk about the great women's games that go over three sets, but we're always talking about the great men's clashes that go over five sets. Yeah, I mean, I think I think we've got to take that from from a few different perspectives. I mean, for a start, I don't necessarily think that um, five set tennis is a better product per se. I mean, obviously, matches like this are incredible, but um, I don't know many people that would have stayed up and watched the whole match. Um, so in terms of actually sitting down watching the match from first point to last point, um, I would say that would be that would be the ideal product when someone's when someone's into it for, for that long. Um, there were quite a lot of men's matches, especially earlier rounds when the fans were. Um, again, I say this as a tennis fan, but you know a one-sided five-set match, which is six-two, six-two, six-three, um, I don't think is that interesting. So in a way, I don't necessarily think that um, an incredible five-set match is necessarily much better than a three-set match. Um, but obviously the classics are always at Grand Slams. Everyone tuned in for those. And, I mean, a match like last night was, was incredible. Um, but on the, on the same page, you know, there's been incredible three-set matches throughout the years, and definitely the women also have some incredible three-set matches. So it's, it's a difficult one to say. You know, I think it's, it's either short and sweet or long, and it could be incredible, but sometimes it could be a little bit up and down as well. Um, but obviously everyone tunes in for the Grand Slam, so it's always a big argument during the slams. But um, yeah. I'm, I'm, a bit, I'm a bit impartial. Okay. <laughs> um, no, Novak Djokovic, very much the clear favourite now on the men's side. If it's, no, if it's not Novak Djokovic, uh, who are you sort of picking? Where do you, where's your gut feeling tell you? Um, I mean, look, I, th- I think probably Medvedev um, would, probably be, uh, would probably be up there amongst my favourites. Um, He's got a couple of matches, you know, that, I mean, everyone's dangerous from now on, but he's playing quarter to then play Chapeau or Hercatch. And, you know, the way he's been playing recently and the way he's generally performed at slams is, is pretty impressive. Um, so I would say at this stage, probably probably Medvedev is, is the biggest is the biggest threat. Um, and then, you know, you could get a city pass, a field coach that I've seen, get some good guys that can play some amazing tennis. And then probably I would say maybe the one the one to throw in there is Holger Rune, who... who him um, at the Paris Masters last year at the end of the year um, and who although he lost first round at the first tournament of the year he's he's come through his first two matches quite comfortably against against very solid players as well mm, okay there seems to be at the moment the women's game seems to be in transition a little bit in terms of the players at the top no longer have we got the Williams sisters um, we seem to every sort of major grand slam there seems to be a different winner uh, who is your pick on the women's side? Um, I think I think Schwertek's probably the favourite. Um, she's the only one that's had some form of dominance um, over the past year or so, or definitely since Ashley Barty stepped away as well from the game. So I'd say Schwertek's definitely um, the favourite. Um, having said that, Pegula, um, she won the United Cup last week. She's got a huge game. She can beat anyone out there. Um, she's probably a she's she's probably um, my number two pick. Um, but then I was really impressed with Coco Goff. Um, you know, she's obviously always improving. She's only 18. She's made some big, big runs and slams. Um, and I thought the way she played in Auckland last week at the Classic was was really impressive. Um, and she started out her first two matches pretty comfortably as well. So those would probably be my three picks. Um, having said that, uh, Danielle Collins made the final a couple of years ago. Who's still in, who's still in there as well. So 
it's definitely more open, mm. but between Schwerkek and Spigula, I would say those are the two, definitely the two favourites who are playing the best tennis at the moment. Yeah, the Americans are never far away. You've got Jessica Curley, you've got Coco Goff, you've got Madison Keys there, as you mentioned, Collins also, all inside the top 15. Remarkable. Yeah, yeah. And, and even on the men's side, there's, I mean, there's eight Americans left in the last 32 in the men's draw, which I, I don't know if it's happened in the past 10 years or if ever, but. Um, that's really impressive to see the amount of Americans now that are coming through um, and actually not necessarily becoming world number one in the men's side yet, but having so many players at a high ranking means that they've been putting in. Uh, the USGA has been doing the right things over the last few years, for sure. Hey, tell us a little bit about your tennis academy and where you're based and what it's ultimately all about, Sebastian. Yeah, so um, so we're based at, um, at Next Generation um, on Stanley Street where they play the ASB Classic. Um, we opened the academy in 2019. Um, our goal is to create uh, top top 100 players, WTA ATP, um, and we set ourselves a 12-year plan for that. So we've got we've got some sort of a player pathway, um, which is ultimately ATP, WTA, and then getting as many kids as we can through Division One colleges. Um, and then over the last couple of years, actually, we've really we've really developed our junior program, and we're just it's just really exciting to see so many kids that are taking tennis as a lifestyle. Um, obviously, they're still doing their school, they're still doing things um, off the court. But a lot of them are going down that pathway of wanting to become, you know, world-class tennis players and giving themselves uh, career opportunities and definitely college opportunities. So our goal is is, is high level, win um, some grand slams, but it won't happen overnight. So in the meantime, we're really excited to have so many kids working hard. Part of the success of Europe is the fact that young kids grow up and play on clay. Can we realistically produce top 100 tennis players without them doing the hard yards, without them paying their dues on clay courts in this country? Um, I mean, I would firstly say yes. I don't necessarily think that the clay court has a direct impact to see if they're going to be at that level. I think one thing that we are lacking, which obviously Europe isn't, is just competitive environments day in, day out. You know, you can go to Paris and you can go to Brussels and you can go to Barcelona and you can do that all within, you know, a few hours drive or a really quick plane ride. Um, and that's really where the that's really where the value is to be in Europe. Um, but what we're putting together with the academy here um, is we're mm. getting a really good solid group of kids from the age of 12 to 15, and then every year we take them over to mm. Europe for for a few months mm. a year. So they do get that exposure. Um, but obviously, if New Zealand was placed um, in the south of France, we would probably have some more tennis players. But um, we're going to try and get as many kids as we can mm. over there, so they get that experience and they understand the demands of a world-class tennis player. Yeah, it's tough though, isn't it? Because you take young kids and you say, look, you need to go to France, you need to go to Europe, you need to understand what's going on. But then you've got those people in the background saying, oh, you're pushing your kids too hard, this is not fair, this is child abuse, um, let them be kids. Yeah. I mean, it's sort of, it's, 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 it's an interesting dichotomy, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, I think it's high-performance sport or, you know, I would guess it would be the same in music when you want to do something exceptionally well, especially in an individual discipline. Um, you just have to be so good so young. And it doesn't mean that everyone's going to make it. Um, I put myself in that basket. You know, I left I left New Zealand when I was 10 years old to go live in France, and um, my family stayed here. So I, you know, made, in some would see it as a big personal sacrifice. However, I didn't get where I wanted, but I got so much life experience through that tennis um, and through that lifestyle and sort of a informal education of, of culture and travel. So, um, you know, there is always the case of, of someone pushing a little bit too hard, but I think that's we should probably looking at the cases that worked really well with like a Cam Norrie, for example, who came mm. out of Buckland Beach and who's now 
um, top 10 in the world. And that's, um, that's through great environment, amazing parents and really a great support team behind them. Look, when I was growing up, and it's got a lot to do with rackets, and I, I understand the way the game has changed, but you only ever see the serve and volley game these days at Wimbledon. Why, why is there no serve and volley game in the men's game particularly anymore? Yeah, I mean, a few factors. Um, number one is the courts have all slowed down quite a lot, so all the courts um, are generally playing a little bit slower. Um, that's number one. Number two is players are a lot more athletic than they used to be. Um, players are moving, they're keeping, their, they're keeping in better shape so they can play longer, they can they can defend a lot better. So there's a lot of sort of physical attributes. Um, and I think it's also just, you know, it's a bit of a trend sometimes. Um, you know, when you have someone like a Sampras who does incredibly well and everyone wants to serve and volley and be like him and then an Agassi comes along and everybody likes Agassi, they stay, they stay at the back a little bit. So I think it's partially trend, but also just the circumstances and the fact that the game is so much more physical. Um, you know, if, if Sampras was playing against Djokovic now, I think there would be quite a few passing shots happening, um, regardless of Sampras' skill at the net. Mm. So it's, uh, it's, a, it's a lot of different factors, but essentially the game is, is evolving and uh, players are just so much better from the baseline. So it's, it's quite, hard to, quite hard to get up there and not get passed. Sebastian Levy, we appreciate you on the programme, mate. Enjoy your trip to Melbourne. Very, very envious, my good man. Well done. Thank you very much. Have a great day, guys. There you go. Do check out his Tennis Academy too if you have got young kids and you want to get involved. You live in the Auckland region. Sebastian Levy. A nice guy. Interesting that he went to France and chased it. I admire kids that do that. That is not easy. But unfortunately, I think that's what's got to be required. You've got to be prepared to sleep in the back of your car, um, do whatever it takes to get there. You know, a champion will always find a way of becoming a champion. And I think what New Zealand tennis need to be doing is actually saying, hey, what did Cameron Norrie do? Okay, Cameron Norrie played his tennis here. What was the next step in his pathway? Okay, he went to the UK. Why did he go to the UK? Better funding. Okay, so how do we tap into the British system? Do we start paying the British system to look after our guys on the understanding they always represent New Zealand? How much work is done in that area when you do get somebody documenting the pathway, documenting the adversity, how they overcame that, because I would imagine there have probably been better juniors and better young players than Cameron Norrie. But Norrie has found a way. Brett Stephen found a way. Clearly the days of Chris Simpson, Russell Simpson, um, the Lewis brothers, go back to the days of Ronnie Perrin. Perhaps it was a little bit easier to make it to the top in the 70s and 80s than it is now because the sport is so global. There is so much money in it and television is taking it around the world and any time that happens, there's always going to be more interest. There's greater critical mass. I, I, I found it in my sport of triathlon. You know, we constantly try and reinvent the wheel. We think somehow money, you know, we get successful at the Olympic Games and we're desperately looking for that next succession plan and we suddenly think money and bringing a whole lot of PowerPoint presentations in is going to do it. And you go, well, hang on a minute. Why did Cameron Brown make it as a, a superstar? Why did Hamish Carter and Bevan Doherty get there? You know, don't try and reinvent the wheel. There's a blueprint in place. And you know what? You might find out that a lot of sports science wasn't behind it, that there wasn't actually a lot of infrastructure and a whole lot of coaching going on. It was just actually a desire and incredible work ethic and the ability to chase it no matter what. Sometimes it's that simple. And I'll often say that. That's the first thing we should identify in any athlete. Passion and desire, but put it in an adverse situation and see how they cope. 
tell everybody one year, this is the best thing I'd do. All these athletes, you bring them in, you pay for them for a year, and they go overseas and they race. Bring them back the following year and say there's no money. See who's prepared to go out and get a part-time job and find their way back to Europe. Those that don't sack, those that do, give them their funding and go, we believe in you because we know no matter what the situation, you're prepared to chase this. And that's the problem when money does come into sport. I think it creates a bit of a false economy. I think a lot of athletes are only in it because they're not having to make the sacrifice. Problem is that's actually a representation of the fact that they actually genuinely lack a bit of heart.